0: Hello and welcome to this podcast produced by the Ursinus Parley Center for Science and the Common Good. My name is Alexa Beecham and today I'm joined by Ursinus Professor Rich Wallace. Dr. Wallace came to Ursinus in 2002 as the founding chair of the department's Environmental Studies department. Since then, he shaped the department such that it cultivates skills of inter- interdisciplinary problem solving and students which enable them to think critically about issues such as wildlife and ecosystem conservation and sustaining community food and agricultural systems. He's also the co-director of the college's Woodacre Environmental Research Station. And in 2014, he was recognized by the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching and Council for Advancement and Support of Education. He is widely published and deeply involved in issues around land and species conservation, sustaining food systems, and science policy. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Wallace. Uh,
1: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Uh, Can you tell me a bit about your work as a professor and a political activist?
1: So, wow, professor and political activist. Absolutely. As a professor of environmental studies, I'll tell you, Hester, how, sort of how I talk about the in, the inherent role of values in teaching environmental studies, because I think that that bridges teaching to political activism pretty directly. There's a myth, let me back up and just say there's a myth that values actually don't belong in the classroom. And and I call it a myth because I believe that it's wrong. I think that it's, it's actually difficult for any human to disassociate themselves from the values that they hold and, and that the presumption that in order to teach the widest sort of representative group of students you have to shelve your values at the door before you walk in actually does a disservice to the educational system. One of the founders of sort of modern educational theory is a philosopher named John Dewey and uh, also father of American pragmatism among them. And, uh, and and his belief about education was that it should be as closely related to and therefore complementary to life's experiences outside the classroom as possible. So as a teacher, and I know I'm, this is a long way around your question, but no, I'm, I'm getting there. As a teacher, you need to represent yourself to your students as accurately as you can as a person in the world. So that flies directly in the face of the idea that you should somehow check your values at the door because you can no sooner disassociate yourself from your values than you cannot breathe because we are what we believe and so our values are inherent in our personalities and in in how they drive our actions the great benefit of teaching in environmental studies is that it is an action-oriented and an activist-oriented discipline itself or um like sort of meta discipline is the way I refer to it since it's an interdisciplinary field and we can talk more about that if you're interested but as a political activist sort of out there in the world I I tend to be I guess I would just use the phrase issues voter and environmental studies allows you to just be an issues oriented political activist right so because environmental studies is trying to accomplish goals and those goals are to help people develop the skills with certain tools of analyzing complex problems that require action. So whether we're talking about really huge things, climate change, biodiversity loss, or uh, local problems, you know, having to do with land development decisions in the town that we're living in, or water pollution, or, you know, anything, the problems are always complex, and the field of environmental studies is designed to help students become practitioners of problem solving. So when you're teaching about those problems, if you're teaching about people who are making those problems worse, you can be judgmental mm-hmm. and, 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 and in a values-oriented way. right? And if you're teaching about methods and institutions and organizations that are trying to address those problems, make them better, solve them, then you can do so in a promotional way. right? Being an environmental studies professor allows you that um, you know that liberty, and so so I could no sooner step into the classroom and shelve my values than I could say that I'm presenting to you, even-handedly the folks that are destroying the you know the 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 ecosystem with the folks who are trying to save it because I'm not I want the ecosystem saved, so the nice thing about being oriented in that way um, is that it allows. In in the educational context um, for us to talk about political activism, right? How do you? What skills do you need? How do you develop those skills in order to best participate in in, in solving complex problems? And and I'll just I'll end with this. And it doesn't have to be partisan, right? We're not talking about political parties. We're talking about the goal of protecting ecological integrity, and um, and so it can be completely bipartisan, nonpartisan, multipartisan, right? It's really about the issues.
0: So in a way, you sort of teach your students
1: to be activists, for whatever it is that they find most. Absolutely, <laughs> I, I I I have no shame about that, <laughs> right? We're 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 trying to solve really complex problems that are leading to the to the degradation and loss of the planet's ecological integrity. You know, we're losing ecosystem function. We're losing species. We're 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 contributing greenhouse gases to to the atmosphere. These are problems and. I want my students to be activists in in both their thinking and their actions about what to do about them.
0: So this semester we've been talking quite a bit about GMOs, and we had both a panel and you gave a talk about them. And over your panel and the talk, you talked about the amount of power that Monsanto has accumulated over the GMO industry. Can you explain how companies like Monsanto acquire this power and the dangers it can bring?
1: Yes, how they acquire the power and the dangers that that it can bring. We have, through most of the past century, developed a, a relationship between industry and the federal government. This occurs in other levels of government as well, but in terms of what we were talking about and what the what the Parley Center series this semester really was addressing was sort of federal level concern about both GMOs and about agricultural policy, agricultural science and policy. And so over the course of the last century we have developed a relationship between industry and government in which industry has developed skills towards a very specific goal of influencing both legislative and regulatory processes that affect their interests, Whether, you know, and, and, and that's both bottom line earnings but also production processes, and, 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 and I'm being very broad here because many industries have engaged in this skill development with, toward the goal of influencing the regulatory and legislative processes some of those industries have had more success than others and partly that depends on how the government has evolved in relation to that pressure over time in the case of agriculture the government has been very friendly towards the exertion of power by industry since world war two that's a long time and that's plenty of time for industry to manipulate that relationship so that they can in essence capture, it's the word out of the literature really, capture the regulatory agencies so that the regulatory processes that occur are ones that are friendly to the industry's interests. And within agriculture that's occurred at a lot of, on a lot of different levels and in a lot of different ways. The case study that the Parley Center focused on in, in this series of talks this semester of GMOs is I think one of the most illustrative case studies of how that power relationship has developed, the the the, the official government policy to make agriculture to, to sort of re-envision the agricultural sector in the United States as one in which large corporate farmers were planting, producing very few crops, actually dates from the Nixon administration, um, and that was when corn and soy became the official sort of the official agricultural policy of the federal government. And, and it was really very quickly after that time that because of the, 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 the whole GMO industry was just in its infancy then, but developing very quickly, it was at that time that because the government was already friendly to large corporate structure in agriculture, that companies like Monsanto and others that were developing these um, genetically modified seeds saw that as an opportunity um, that they could take advantage of. And that was exactly what they did. And so you had sort of two concurring evolutions or two concurring sort of threads in the evolution of that relationship between government and industry. One was just broadly the large-scale agricultural endeavor to the detriment of smaller-scale farmers and then the other was the government's support of genetic modification of living organisms. And those two things both occurred relatively quickly and in ways that really favored industry's interests and then Monsanto, a couple of other corporations, but none as successfully as Monsanto, which is why it's such an easy case study to talk about. I mean, there are others, but uh, Monsanto married those two. And having married the, the, corporate, the, the, the government's friendly approach to, to sort of corporate agriculture with the control, the, the patenting, and the control of seeds. They end up wielding a a, a a disproportionate amount of power in american agriculture and and actually now in global agriculture because um, simply and I said this in my talk and I showed some slides to this effect when the top five cash crops in this country and 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 the top three and three of the top five in the world um, are ones that have transitioned almost entirely to genetically modified seeds Mm -hmm. and Monsanto is the sole producer or the largest producer of those seeds and owns the rights to them because that's what the law allows. That's an enormous amount of control over the global agricultural system for one company.
0: Yeah, so we talk about how these structures sort of build and how it's really hard to disable these systems of power once they already exist. So I have a question actually about the original recombinant DNA and how that was originally approached. So it was still in its relative infancy, biochemist Dr. Paul Dur- Berg drafted the Berg letter which advised scientists, policymakers, and citizens to reflect upon the potential hazards that recombinant DNA could cause. This is a prime example of scientists engaging in active discourse with about the societal consequences of their work, and it seems that when we are merely deciding whether or not to adopt new technology, we put an immense amount of thought. Into, and care into the whether we should or should not actually partake in these decisions. And once but the, once the innovation is put into practice, we don't seem to notice when the execution goes awry or when companies acquire large amounts of dangerous power, as it has with Monsanto's in the Monsanto case. How can we be more aware collectively of these negative outcomes and what can we do to reduce and prevent them?
1: So that's a bit of a loaded question, but in a good way. Um, I think that what it illustrates is that science and scientists have very little power in this set of relationships that we're talking about. I mean, there are other examples, probably the preeminent, the sort of iconic example is the Manhattan Project, right? And then the, the soul searching that went into the creation of the atomic bomb. I mean, there's great documentation on that. And, and what you've described now with regards to recombinant DNA and then the, the sort of evolution, which happened again very quickly in the 70s thereafter, to the current state of GMOs actually is a really good parallel to the Manhattan Project, right? We have a bunch of sort of really in the world members of the scientific community working on this cutting-edge technology and, 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 and the, the, in the case of recombinant DNA, the, the rapidity, the speed with which we went from creating the technology to calling for to having meetings to talk about the ethics of it was lightning fast, and that was great and meant nothing in terms of the overall impact on either government regulation or industry's control. It meant nothing. It didn't even begin to slow down the processes of that relationship between government and industry. No more so, and it's, this is where the parallel becomes be, becomes more awkward, right? No more so than it did with regards to the development of atomic power, but of course being a war cast that in a totally different light. But I think that the, I think that the, that the, the, the similar sort of conclusion that I started with um, is accurate, right? Is that the scientists knew the dangers. We knew, society-wide, I mean, those dangers were publicized in the case of recombinant DNA. We had principles within two years. You know, an internationally recognized group of, of scientists came together and talked about the dangers and the risks and put together a set of principles that had no effect on the evolution of the use of that technology. And, and and so you have to ask, why would it have had no effect on the evolution and the use of the technology? And really the only answer can be because the processes of the control of the legal standards, the legal precedents, the regulatory processes, the production processes, all of that does not care about the science or the scientists, except in as much as it support the processes that they are interested in continuing which is and, and, and that sounds like me just bashing government and industry right but actually what I'm doing and maybe I am to an extent but what I'm doing is I'm actually describing a historical reality right because those standards existed by whenever it was 1975 or 1976 the standards for the use of genetically modified organisms and in very short order we not only dispensed with them but sped on ahead with everything that has developed since then with regards to both the technology development and the inequity um, in power that exists in agriculture, both in the U.S. and globally.
0: So um, many people hold a view that's different from your own. They suppose that GMOs are dangerous to consume, and they oppose their usage as a means of protecting their health. How is this mentality ultimately problematic?
1: Wow, in so many ways. Um, it's a, so, so to be clear and on the record, I am not personally concerned about the health effects of GMOs meaning I eat genetically modified food. I try to eat as much non-genetically modified food in my diet and my families the same way as we can. But I don't feel that the data, such as it is, that has been promoted in defense of the argument that GMO food is less healthy for you or of greater risk than non-GMO food, I don't believe that data is valid, or at least not compelling. Now, there's a big caveat to that. Right? And the big caveat to that is that it's really too soon to tell for sure. And I don't say that to be a doomsayer, but we have all manner of examples over the course of time in which 10, 20, 30, you know, even 40 years of data aren't enough to tell us exactly what the risks and the dangers are. Right, So we can say right now that eating genetically modified, eating this or that genetically modified um, food has... To this state produced no ill effects that we're aware of does that mean that in 50 years that will still be the case we can't know right so caution is always a good thing so that's my caveat so so lacking a good scientific argument for you know limiting or banning gmos on a public health basis the fact that that is still a compelling argument to some in the anti-gmo field has actually been taken advantage of by proponents of GMOs because it allows them to cast the anti-GMO advocates as out of touch with science and and out of the mainstream. And so so advocates for GMOs have used the health argument of the anti-GMO advocates against them very effectively. So what I try and this is why this is why I focused in my talk in the Parley Center series the way that I did, particularly following the showing of the film Food Evolution which is a piece of propaganda by the um, by the GMO industry was because in fact this about the about just this issue that you're asking about um, because what is lost in that argument is the stuff that we've been talking about and that's the power relationships and the influence of the of, of the power relationships on on what's really sort of a core issue for me which is choice and and equity and accessibility for consumers for farmers for supermarket chains i mean for for everyone right so so we all give up power to Monsanto and a few other corporations due to the current structure of uh, of agriculture that the relationship between the, the those between Monsanto and other industry representatives and government has allowed them to amass so I guess in a nutshell, I find the the g m o health conflict to be a distraction. Mm-hmm. But I'd be happy to eat my words about that if there were data that showed that GMOs, either way, were absolutely safe or not safe, right? And um, and I think, you know, only time will tell.
0: Why do you suppose that fear of GMOs, and it really is a fear, has developed in the first place?
1: I think it's actually f- pretty easy to fear-monger, to create, to cultivate fear. Fear is a very powerful tool, and so rather than trying to just help people to learn the sort of complexities of the differences between one type of food and another, much less to ask them to learn the complexities of the institutional relationships so that they understand that purchasing this or that food actually has an influence on power, you know, of industry and government's role in it. That's that's a harder thing to do. In my opinion, that's the necessary thing that we need, that we must do, but that's a harder thing to do than to just cultivate fear. Mm-hmm. So, because fear is a powerful motivator, people default to that as a, as a strategy to, to drive behavior change. Because mm-hmm. if I went out there with a placard saying, be concerned about power, right, <laughs> I'm not going to motivate behavior change too easily or too quickly compared with getting people scared.
0: Um, so, what kinds of changes do you, in agriculture do you anticipate as we work around climate change to accommodate a growing population?
1: That's a twenty thousand dollar question, right? Yeah. Because, <laughs> because we don't know. Let's 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 say, for the sake of argument, that we're going to end up at ten billion people before we plateau in global population. We're going to need, I believe, that we're going to need large scale agriculture, right? We're not going to turn away from the large scale agriculture that exists now. That being said, we can reconceive the institutional arrangements. What I mean by that is the stuff that I referred to before, accessibility and food choice and equity with regards to costs of food through both national and international policymaking. Now, that's all very broad and general, right? And, and, and we don't have the time in this podcast to go into all of the details and that would probably put some of your listeners to sleep to talk about them in too great a detail, right? But there are structures set up now through which nations of greater affluence provide resources to nations of lesser affluence. And in the area of agriculture, there's actually a great deal of wisdom in nations of lesser affluence, particularly on the African um, continent, um, with regards to agricultural um, ins- sort of institutional arrangements that I think the rest of us could benefit from learning. So, so so, so, I give you just those two examples. There are lots of other both geographies at play obviously all across the world and lots of other institutional arrangements at play other than like aid from, from affluent nations to less affluent nations and, and, and sort of you know cultural knowledge in, in Africa. But those two are good examples of how knowledge sharing and frankly the sharing both of intellectual and practical tools needs to occur in order for us to be prepared for the 10 billion. And that type, of, that type of interaction, that type of integrative sharing of knowledge and tools is not happening. And part of the reason why it's not happening is because of the control of the institutions, particularly in the affluent nations, that would be responsible for that, for, for promoting that type of integrative communication, the control of those institutions by corporations like Monsanto. So I hate to always come back to bashing Monsanto, but they're but they're an easy target, right? Because they don't want they don't want institutional arrangements between nations to 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 look anything like they don't want them to look in any way other than the way that best benefits them. And the thing that makes Monsanto such an easy target, and the reason why I keep going back to them versus other other um, corporations, is that Monsanto has actually been, you know, among the most sort of outspokenly crass in, in in their willingness to take advantage of of, of um, you know stakeholders that are less powerful than they are <laughs> so you know when you're a bully it's easy to it's easy to criticize a bully, right? So mm-hmm. as, as a corporation, they're, they, they're a bully, so that's why we focus on them. Um, but to get back to your question, it's going to take a lot more international cooperation. It's going to take a lot more willingness on the part of the affluent nations to listen to, you know, for example, some of the cultural and traditional knowledge that exists in, 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 in both Africa and other parts of the world. And then it's going to take institutions, which I don't even know if we can say that they exist right now, operating... To, for both information and technology transfer between like all the points at which the necessary knowledge and technology exist in order to benefit both sides, like not to just benefit one model over the other, or not to just privilege one model over the other. And I'm trying to keep this general because there are a zillion data points and case studies that we can talk about, but that's my general answer.
0: Finally, what steps can we as scientists, students, and citizens take to continue this conversation in our own lives?
1: strive for empowered self-awareness. And that's a good general lesson, you know, about all things in life. But with regards to how we operate in the food system, all of this comes down to knowing where our food comes from, knowing and caring where our food comes from, how it's produced, and what the alternatives are with regards to food access and 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 and, and choice. So, so, uh, so I'll, I'll finish with this example because it's great and it's local. We have a, a supermarket coming to Collegeville, going to open in February, called Kimberton Whole Foods. Not related to the national Whole Foods chain, which is now owned by Amazon. Um, Kimberton Whole Foods is from Kimberton, Pennsylvania, which is about 25 minutes from Collegeville. And they had the name first, which is why they got to keep it. They, yeah. So they existed before Whole Foods market the national chain existed so so the, the name confuses people but that's life. So Kimberton Whole Foods is a locally owned and operated um, chain. I think that there are six of them or so and they are opening here in Collegeville and, and their sort of their model is that mo- that they, they is to buy and then sell as much locally produced food as they can so so in their stores, in their existing stores, they have sort of laid out the same way that a major brand um, supermarket would be laid out. You've got around the edges the produce and breads and dairy and and, and all that sort of stuff that's around the edges. And all of that is from local And local might be as far as you know Lancaster and and and, I mean might might be a couple hundred miles regional really, but all of that is from local producers, Mm -hmm. and then in the middle where you've got some of the canned goods, you know, and, and and dried goods, whether it's pasta or pasta sauces or whatever, they buy some national brands that are organic. So the thing about this store is not only that's great. That's not only that you can go into the store and see that there are every type of meat and every type of dairy and so much else that is produced within an hour, you know, to two hours from here, Mm -hmm. but that the prices are not only going to be competitive, but in a lot of cases, they're going to be less than what you would pay at Wegmans or Redner's. Mm -hmm. So to get back to your question, to be self-aware means asking the questions, what am I eating? What am I buying? And, and, And where is it coming from? And then to go beyond that. What are the, what are the choices that I have, and what are the implications of the choices that I'm making, and and just to give this one example, most people think, oh well, a smaller, locally owned, mostly organic, local foods market, the presumption is that it's going to be more expensive mm-hmm. than what you can buy elsewhere, and that just isn't that just isn't the case, right, and so so my hopes is that mm-hmm. Kimberton Whole Foods will open in Collegeville, and they will take market share from Wegmans, and Redner's. Yeah. And, um, and, and and introduce to this community the idea that, in fact, you can support local agriculture, you can support organic agriculture, you can eat um, non-GMO foods, and you're actually not only not brink of the bank, but you're actually saving money.
0: Thank you so much.